I think that there's a there's a sort of dispassionate view of the world that comes through in a lot of cybersecurity news that's kind of calling balls and strikes as if computer security is a thing that happens to computers. This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbyte podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. First things first, Happy New Year, everyone. It is officially 2022, which feels a little gross to say, but let's not dwell on it. Today, we don't have a single story to focus on like we usually do, so no investigations into VPNs, no ransomware attack dissected by its victim, no NFTs. All right, actually, there's there's a little bit of NFTs in today's episode, now that I think about it, but today, we're talking to the team behind our blog, Mauerbytes Labs, and we're just having a chat, just having a chat about what they learned about cybersecurity last year, and also what upset them the most about cybersecurity in 2021. Because I don't know if this is immediately clear to folks not in the news industry, but when your day-to-day job is to follow the news and to follow any industries or beats developments, and then either assign, write, edit, or publish stories about those developments, you get a bit jaded. You see patterns. Patterns make good stories, after all, because you can point to things happening separately and say, ah, no, a trend is here. Isn't that interesting? And it is, but often those trends, those patterns go ignored. Or those trends are of bad things. Ransomware attacks on the rise. Ransomware demands increasing. Backups failing. Zero days everywhere, sometimes in the same types of tools, repeatedly. And and then you think, who is working to fix all of this? But that's not a great question, because if you take a census of just that, you'll learn that the internet is kept afloat by, like, globally, eight people. Today, to learn about cybersecurity's most upsetting trends in 2021, and anything new learned in a turbulent year, we're speaking with Malwarebytes Lab's editor-in-chief, Anna Brading, and Mauerbytes Labs writer, Mark Stockley. Anna, Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for having us on. Yes, thank you. Thank you for being on. Uh, It's exciting to have both of you on here. Welcome to Lock and Code. I almost forgot the name of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Going well so far. Good New Year, was it? Smooth sailing. (laughs) Let's jump right into the questions like I said here and my first one is just right what upset you the most about cybersecurity in the past year what pissed you off what I don't like is there are some members of the security community and I know some personally that it's the arrogance of assuming that everybody knows how to protect themselves online so everybody knows how to set up 2FA. Everybody knows how to do backups. And why aren't we doing these things? Because we know how to do them. So why aren't we doing them? And, you know, when a breach happens, just change your passwords. You should be, why are you not using the same password? Why why are you using the same password on every system? Why are you doing that? I think there's a lot that we need to do as members of the security community to help educate people. And I I don't know how to do it because I feel like we're saying the same thing over and over again. I don't know if you guys have got any (laughs) ideas. I think we have to stop telling them. What, just let them run free? Good luck. This has been a sort of ongoing conversation through this year, actually, that I've been having with David about this. And there comes a point where you have to say, do you know what? 20 years of trying to tell people to use good passwords isn't working. Yeah. Like, at what point do you go, we probably spent enough money on this. 
we may be approaching this the wrong way. Take passwords as an example. What we're trying to do is we're trying to improve the security of systems by getting absolutely everybody that uses those systems to be better. And I yeah. can't think of another walk of life where you would take that approach. You know, what you would do is you would say, well, what's the central focus? What's the bottleneck where we can make changes? And I, to be fair, I think that that's happening in the security community more now. But there is this sort of legacy of blaming users. So let's stop telling people that they have to pick better passwords and start just making that the barrier to entry. You have to pick a better password. Yes. You can't have that bad password. And doing the things on the back end that you can do in order to safeguard people and just using things like rate limiting so that, you know, you don't get a a computer program can't come along and try 100,000 passwords on one login screen. You know, it gets Mm. three goes and that massively changes the math around how complex your password needs to be, for, for example. Yeah. Do you think it needs a rebrand? Like 2FA, multi-factor authentication, whatever you want to call it. Do you do you think it needs a rebrand? I feel like it's not even the nice, it's not even user-friendly. The name is not even nice. Like <laughs> what, which which name? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which of its 12 names is that? <laughs> 2FA, MFA. What are we talking about? Yeah, on that, right? Like you were saying, Anna, about the whole like we assume that everyone can just kind of figure it out. I also hate seeing those conversations about. 2FA, where someone is always trying to poke holes in the thing that someone is doing. Like they've learned something, they've dealt with the learning curve, they've met an obstacle, and they're like, okay, now I am a user who uses 2FA or MFA. Ugh. And someone comes along online and is like, well, did you know that text message based MFA and 2FA is only what rubes do and morons? <laughs> it's just like, okay, yeah, like, yes. Yes, there are attacks. There are vulnerabilities of, again, SMS-based 2FA and MFA. But when you're starting at a ground floor and then you you adopt this entirely new thing, which it's not something we do, I think, in, in other realms of life. It's a purely digital procedure. It's not something we might be used to. And then to be met immediately with like, you know, tutting, like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, uh, can we... Can we take some wins, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's not the way we do that anymore, actually. You should be doing it the other way. Okay, so what about updates, right? So generic family member one might use Chrome. (laughs) I get in trouble if I say my mum. She tells me off if I use her as an example. Someone uses Chrome (laughs) and they have 25 tabs open. And there's how many have there been this year? Yeah, I think it's like 16 or something, zero days in Chrome this year. So generic family member one doesn't know when to get an update or even that she has to shut down everything. Like maybe Chrome should just kick you out every time that it needs an update or something. Cause otherwise people just aren't going to update. Yeah. yeah. It went really well when windows tried to do that. Oh yeah. Like, when windows is like, we've had enough. We've been telling <laughs> you to update this for quite a while. We're just going to go ahead and do it. So what's, See the how answer, like Mark? what's the answer? I don't know. I feel like. I keep coming back to this thing that we we just have to take things off users. We have to take the responsibility off users. So just go, just returning to 2FA for just a second, I think it's very easy. Actually, this applies to patching as well. But I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this stuff is actually confusing and complicated. Mm. Okay. If you work in the field, it's not because that's what you do all day. But for lots and lots of people, this stuff is confusing and complicated. And one of the most important security experiences that I had was just trying to teach someone to use a password manager. Yeah. 
just walking someone, a perfectly intelligent person who uses a computer every day through the process of using a password manager, and you can't get away from the fact, like unless you're going to stand over them and go, you're rubbish, you don't know what you're doing. Look, this is a perfectly good representative of the normal population. And they had real difficulty with things mm. like they can't see where their password has gone. Like they just don't have the mental model that there's a thing and it's now remembering their password. Yeah. So they don't have to write it down because that, that, that's all looked after. But they were thinking, well, you know, where, where is it? How do I know that that's been stored? How do I know that you'll remember it? They have to use it a few times before they realize, oh, that's going to type my password in for me. Yeah. And even then, um, once you set it up on your desktop, then you've got to put the app on your phone. And then, then it's a whole another ball game for them to learn how to do that because it's different if for some yeah. password managers anyway. It's a different thing to do when it's on your phone. I did that. Like I did that recently when I went on vacation. I like added it. I added password manager to my tablet. And as someone that like works in cybersecurity, I felt like an idiot. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> is this correct? Like, is this the right thing to be doing? And, you know, it'll tell you like, okay, like to do this, you need like a master level like password. And you think that's your login password, but you're like, they're like, no, 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 no. This is a thing we've literally never asked you before. Find it. <laughs> um, and yeah, it doesn't matter. I want to say uh, the thing that pissed me off, I really hated some of the coverage we saw about cybersecurity in the past year. I really hated like the fawning coverage of threat actors, treating them kind of like superstars. Maybe it's always been there, right? And I think maybe I saw a little bit more of it because we saw it as focused on ransomware. We saw more and more ransomware attacks, I think, than we ever have. And so again, we were even calling this like, oh, the summer of ransomware. And we saw like new groups spring up. And I remember specifically, and I'm not going to like name names, right? Because the, the list would be like really long. A lot of people make these mistakes. But uh, the one that really got me is there was a Q&A, like a Q&A with Black Matter, like the ransomware group. And one of the questions that they were asked was about like, it mentioned their product. Like, hey, like, this is the thing your product does. And like, using the word product, legitimizing the thing that this group does, their their product is ransomware. Like what a like what a bizarre way to frame it. Why are you borrowing their rhetoric? I mean, I don't even think it's their rhetoric. I don't think they were like, hey guys, you know, product product update notes, you know, uh here we go. Oh, hey, oh guys, we got a really good product push. Let's make sure the campaign is working. Like, no, they don't do that. Like why are we dressing it up in this language? And they asked them softball questions, you know? They asked them questions about their product. Oh, what does it do? Hey, what, oh, what does it do? Oh, what, what new tools do you have to ruin people's lives? It's just like, I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. I'm not saying that, look, I'm not saying that we get it right 100% of the time, you know? But I don't think we've gotten it that wrong before. That's all. This is like, we're moving into an era, we are fully in an era where cybersecurity coverage like cybersecurity news isn't like it's not a niche it's not it's not something that's like oh this affects one percent of the population it may affect you know the one percent of the population that are it workers you know it may affect them in a different way but like a ransomware attack on a school affects people who have never had to think about ransomware before a ransomware attack on <laughs> that cascading ransomware attack against kaseya earlier this year affected grocery stores in Sweden. People who never had to think about these things before, it is now affecting them in ways that are real, are true. They're losing money. They're losing income. They're losing hours on the clock. And for us to be like, hey, that group that just 
destroyed a lot of people's holidays. Tell us about your product update. I'm just like, come on, you know? That was a thing uh, that I hated. (laughs) Yeah, they wouldn't do it with any other kind of criminal, would they? I don't think it's not. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so, right? Yeah. I mean, we have a... So I don't know if this is true in other countries, right? But the U.S. has like a bizarre fascination with serial killers. We do that. We do that pretty well. We have like Netflix series and we have like dramatizations and we have like books, you know? And Thousands I, of podcasts. Thousands. Oh my gosh. We have thousands of podcasts that are just, I think, rotting people's brains and just being like, oh, look at ooh, look at this criminal. Like, oh, wow. Wow. They, <laughs> ooh, they murdered people. Wow. Like, I've never understood it. I don't really get it. Even in that field. I mean, I, I kind of understand the, the fascination with serial killers, I think. I feel it's whether you like it or not, you're, you're sort of biologically designed to be aware of predation. It's mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. relatively recently in human history that we haven't really had to worry about larger, stronger animals eating us for lunch. And so I can understand wanting, like, be, have this sort of fascination with predators. But even within that, that field, I watched one of those serial killer programs and and sort of went I think I went off down a YouTube hole and there are discussions about interviews I think somebody did an interview with Charles Manson or a series of interviews and that was subject to exactly the same questions that you're talking about where people were saying there was something about the way the interview was conducted that it wasn't really searching Charles Manson it was more like it was providing a platform for him to just say what he wanted to say and I read that interview I think I certainly read one that's like the one that you're talking about. And you're sort of going down through the whole thing and you're thinking, oh, I can't quite believe they're asking these questions. Like, what new features do you have coming up in your product? There must be a payoff. There's got to be a point where they go, so, like, now we've established a rapport. What does it feel like to cause people's death because you want money? Like, you're prepared to shut down pipelines and food supplies and hospitals and things like that. You you obviously don't care if people die. Why not? Or like, how do you live with yourself? Or, yeah, you know, how do you cry? Do you cry yourself to sleep at night? Or what, that sort of thing. But it just wasn't there. It just ended. It was a sales pitch. It was a literal sales pitch. And I think there's a place for knowing your enemy and finding out what makes them tick. And there is probably a place for talking to the Taliban. But there is a way to do it. And this was not that way. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think you've hit on a... Like that's a particularly egregious example of of something. One of the things, actually, top of my list was I dislike the trend towards sports reporting that happens around cybersecurity. So I think this is even more general than cybersecurity. I think it happens in in just general news as well. But I I think that there's a there's a sort of dispassionate view of the world that comes through in a lot of cybersecurity news that's kind of calling balls and strikes as if computer security is a thing that happens to computers. Mm. And I think if you're into computer security or you're into scripting or programming or red teaming or or blue teaming or whatever, you're kind of in it because you like the engineering. You know, you like the cleverness, you like the puzzle solving, you like the engineering. But actually all these things are tools that are used by people. And cybersecurity ultimately is about people. And often it's about the pain that people go through. And in the case of ransomware, it is absolutely about the pain that people go through. And there was a moment this year where I sort of, it dawned on me that ransomware isn't about encrypting files on computers. Oh, that's the way I normally describe it. You know, I've written so many articles where you go, ransomware encrypts files on computers. 
ransomware is about inflicting enough pain on people that they feel willing to part with millions and millions of dollars to make it stop. If people didn't care about those files, they wouldn't pay the ransom. If it was just balls and strikes, if they were ambivalent, they would just write that off. It's about putting people in an emotional state where they will comply. So it's it's about power and achieving compliance through violence. And I don't think that that is said nearly enough. And I'm sure I have been guilty of this in the past. And I'm trying very hard to address it in a different way now. And I guess a bit like the sort of reformed smoker. Now I can smell everyone else's cigarette smoke, you know, and it's twice as bad for me as it is for everybody else. Yeah, but in terms of cybersecurity, is it because people that are traditionally in the industry, that's what they're into? They're into the computers and they're into like maybe less about the people. So then it it gets transferred into the reporting. Are you saying that people who work in IT don't have great social skills? Is that what you're trying to say? That's absolutely not what I'm saying, Mark. Maybe because <laughs> you know you know why I used to work in IT. Right? <laughs> so in you a way, you're saying that about of me. one. <laughs> no, but you know, if you were going to characterise an IT guy, you might say that they are into the computers. Like you would go, you go into IT because you're into computers. You don't go for people. If I if I'm into people, I'm going to go into HR. But I don't know. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I think there's probably a great big dollop of that. Yeah. Yeah. What did you folks learn about cybersecurity in 2021? Well, it was a funny year for me because I was actually out for a lot of it because I was on uh, maternity leave. But what I did think was interesting was I went on maternity leave in, I don't know, it was mid-January, I think. And no one was talking about NFTs, no one at all. And then I came back... In September, and I was like, "What is going on? Like, I can't move for NFTs. <laughs> they are everywhere." <laughs> and yeah, Mark, I know you feel strongly about NFTs. That I money mean- is not going to launder itself, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> so NFTs is it basically like buying a star? It's Ooh, like- yeah, yes, it's oh, exactly yeah. like buying a star. <laughs> this is, oh, this is so good. This is so. David, you should great. do a podcast about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is fantastic. That was last week, Mark. Yeah. So when this is recorded, right, the day before I recorded all of my spoken, all of my spoken pieces for the NFT podcast, which will have come out by the time people hear this. And there is a star naming piece inside of it, like a good chunk. Yes. And people I can listen I made to that it. Up. You did. <laughs> Let's give you retroactive anachronistic credit. Let's say you went back in time and you got it. It is star naming. Like that's that's what it is. It's a lot of people <laughs> deciding to agree that a star is named that. And I try and make the point that like, okay, well, it's a star. It's it's named that to who? And you have a group of people who are saying, no, 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 it's, it's that to us. And, and when you ask the question, well, what about to those other people? This one group of people, this first group of people says, well, no, 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 no. We wrote it down though. And we wrote it in a, in a blockchain and the blockchain is impossible to change. Therefore, that star is named that. That star that star is named David. Who will challenge me? NASA? Then what's what standing do they have? So yeah, NFTs got real big. <laughs> I actually heard the first thing that made me question my own thinking about NFTs yesterday. Weirdly enough, it was actually it was some committee in either the Senate or the House in the US. And it was a surprisingly well-behaved conversation. 
where somebody was very carefully trying to explain what's going on with NFTs. And it wasn't specifically NFTs. It was about blockchains and Web3 in general. And Web3 is this catch-all term for blockchain-enabled services. And they were trying, they were, the way they described it is they were saying, the web as it is now is in the hands of a small number of absolutely enormous players. So shopping is owned by Amazon. Social media is effectively owned by Facebook. And everything else is owned by Google. And they get to decide what happens. And in Web3, by buying into things on the blockchain, everybody owns a little piece of the network. And it's a decentralized ownership model. And I thought, actually, that sounds really interesting. I hadn't heard it explained like that. I'm still not convinced, not 100%. And I don't think that it maps specifically over to NFTs, just because I think what's going on with NFTs is it looks like there's a massive price bubble. You have to sort of differentiate the, the existence of NFTs from the fact that a bunch of people have jumped on NFTs as a way to make money. And so things that are, you would look at, your gut tells you there is no intrinsic value to this, and yet somehow it costs $500,000. And that's just because that's what people are willing to pay today. But I fully expect all of that, I may well be proved wrong, but I fully expect that house of cards to come falling down. But NFTs may well be left over at the end of it. They may still exist. But perhaps the crazy prices that we're seeing at the moment won't. One thing I learned, right, because I mainly just through this podcast, right, I learned that there's like a lot of broken things in our products and in, in, in the internet, right? The one that surprised me the most is when there was the Kaseya, the Kaseya ransomware attack. And I was talking to, you know, one of the fellows who helped find the vulnerability. And he was like, oh, yeah, this stuff is everywhere. This is in so many remote monitoring tools, remote applications, remote access applications. And in Kaseya, they found seven to eight zero days. And he was saying like, hey, these aren't advanced. You know, these are these are simple vulnerabilities to find and exploit. And what surprised me as well about that is there was like this group, like this volunteer group, the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, that was helping Kaseya fix it. And Kaseya was responding. They were good and responsible, but they weren't fast enough. And I was like, how is it we've left these things to volunteers? It feels like a broken system. I guess that, but the thing is, it works, doesn't it? Sort of. There is a, a, a huge amount. We discovered this just recently with, with Log4j. You know, there is an enormous amount of stuff out there that relies on voluntary contributions. And everybody knows, or everybody, I'm doing the thing that we said at the beginning we don't like. Some of us know that big, big projects like Linux are open source projects. And at least in the early days, they were entirely based on volunteer contributions. But actually, massive amounts of software are like that or contain pieces of software that are like that. And then you have an incident like Log4j where suddenly it turns out, oh, actually, there's only two people that maintain this piece of code and everybody else has decided to include it in their projects. So every piece of software in the world is vulnerable now. And then let's go and tell those people what we think of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of why I bristle at the whole, like everything is fixed or maintained by volunteers is because trying to relate this to like other things. You know, there's a lot of companies right now that are going through trying to improve like diversity and inclusion efforts, right? And accessibility efforts. And what I've learned is like a lot of those efforts are led by like individual people who are heralded as, as champions, right? Oh, they're champions. And 
I really don't like the champion structure. I really worry about it because the champion structure doesn't have any succession planning in it. And so if that person leaves, that company loses like its driving force. It loses all of the work that was happening. And I wish we didn't rely on merely like the goodwill of people who are working extra hours to get good things done. Uh, Frankly, I'm just saying I wish we paid people. That's it. I wish it was like, okay, yeah, you did this thing get paid more, you know, like, or like, oh, yeah, you're volunteering to fix the internet as we know it. Let's pay you, please. Like, that's the, if so much of our lives depends on getting paid for things, can we get paid for all of the things we do? <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is also a lesson that just repeats itself over and over and over again, because it happens every year or so we have something like Heartbleed, or I can't remember what it was called now, the problem with OpenSSL a few years ago. Actually, that may have been Hartley, where, again, it turns out that, you know, there's three people who maintain this thing and absolutely everybody uses it. And, you know, mm. they haven't had time to look for bugs, but people have been slapping new features on it. I was just thinking when you were talking, David, imagine if we did other things the way that we do software. So let's say you took your car to the garage because you had a, is it called garage in America? It's called garage, but we're, you know, we're going to let it, pa- I'll, I'll say tomato one time and, <laughs> and banana and we'll be even, you know. <laughs> I now understand what you're saying, though. We actually, I think you mean, like, we say auto shop or, like, car yeah, shop. That, ah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. There you go. So your, your car's broken. You take it to the auto shop. And somebody says, ah, well, see, what's the problem there is your wheel is buckled. You're going to need a new wheel. But actually, wheels are maintained by Fred on a volunteer basis. <laughs> And he's actually a bit bored of maintaining wheels. And so he's gone off to work on cubes for a while. (laughs) And so there are no, there are no wheels available to you at the moment, but you know, anybody who wants to fork wheels and run their own wheels, you could, you could make your own wheel, just get Fred's blueprints uh, off the internet and you can just make your own wheel. What do you think? Yeah. It's preposterous, right? Like it doesn't, it's, (laughs) It's the silliest thing. Imagine that. Also, there's no money in cubes. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what did you learn this year? <laughs> I too actually learned quite a lot from the podcast. So thank you very much, David. Oh, very ah. cool. Nice. Actually, one of the lessons that was reinforced for me was kind of like the one that you said. Was that several years ago, I remember somebody, a systems administrator, saying to me, the problem with security is complexity. It's about managing complexity. Mm. The more complexity you have, the worse things get. You know, you get sort of exponentially worse attack surfaces and things like that. So it's all about managing complexity. And every area that you have drilled down into, like when you spoke to, was it Jess Dodson about the security Mm. basics? Yeah. You know, whenever you drill down and you go, well, we tell people to patch, but they don't patch. Why don't they patch? Well, okay, let me spend 30 minutes telling you why it's complicated. You know, okay, well, why don't people use good passwords? Well, let me, if you've got 15 minutes, I'll tell you why it's complicated. Everything you, you drill down into is complicated. So I think that I've had that lesson really reinforced for me this year, that securing computers is really complicated. And we mm. have to do a much, much better job of taking complexity out and not doing stuff and retiring things that are old and not just keeping backwards compatibility forever. We just have to get better at saying, that's enough. That doesn't work anymore. We're not supporting that. Yeah, but then don't you get into the whole, but what about these companies that can't afford the 
new stuff so that they're on older systems like medical facilities that are on Windows XP or whatever. Then <laughs> you say, you say why do you hate doctors, Mark? I just said. <laughs> <laughs> What's your problem? I mean, they're already having a hard time. <laughs> I don't think it's that easy, is what I'm saying. No, I don't, I don't think it's easy either. But I don't think the status quo is easy either. No. And also, I, I don't feel like we're making great progress either. It comes back to what I was saying earlier. I feel like when you've been doing the same thing for 20 years, there comes a point where you have to say, maybe grinding away at this problem in the way that we have been doing is not the way that we should be thinking about it. Maybe we should be thinking about it in a different way. I got nothing else. <laughs> oh god you got a whole page <laughs> <laughs> i mean what's on your list bro what's on no i've done i've done i've done it's complicated that was that was the important one but i was going to talk about leslie carhart as well so when you were saying about what did you learn about cybersecurity in the last year probably the thing that surprised me most actually was listening to leslie carhart on the podcast and David had booked her, I think, with an expectation that the conversation would go a certain way. Mm. So critical infrastructure attacks were big news at the time. And so David was like, let's get someone who knows all about critical infrastructure protection in and let's find out what's going on. Let's dig in, find out the detail. David, maybe maybe you could fill us in because you actually had the conversation. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're... No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, it was It was definitely one of the more interesting interviews because, um, like you said, I, I kind of went into it thinking that it was this one thing, you know, that we'd seen a, a couple of attacks, particularly on water treatment facilities in the United States. We'd seen one where someone had successfully changed the uh, chemical levels at a water treatment facility and someone on site noticed that and then brought it back down. So there was no... There was no period of time in which people were actually going to be poisoned but the attack was successful someone did breach a system and they weren't supposed to and so i thought like oh man the sky is falling and i went into this interview thinking like well, the sky is falling and it's interesting to have a a conversation with someone where every question you're like revving up and you're like here's all this evidence for what i think is the picture and someone being like well actually no it's not that bad we figured it out you know critical infrastructure because we have to worry about large-scale attacks and the consequence of a critical infrastructure attack is immediately clear. It is lives lost. It is explosions. It is disaster, as we typically understand the word. They're like, well, we've set ourselves up to notice those things. Like, we, we always have stop gaps. We always have second people monitoring. We always have someone at a station watching someone else at a station. And it was just like, no, the, the way we've structured ourselves, like... Yes, an, an attack can happen, but we're going to catch it within seconds. And that's literally what happened with that one attack. And it was reassuring, but it was so, it was the only time I think we've done the framing of why isn't this working? Like this framing of look at all these terrible things happening. Why isn't it working? And we came away with, oh, no, it is working. Okay, never mind. <laughs> and that was nice to hear. Yeah, that, that was it in a nutshell. Perfectly done. I mean, the and the thing about infrastructure was they were expecting all that bad stuff before they had computers. That was the really interesting yeah. thing. It was like, okay, yeah. critical infrastructure sort of has a reputation for being a bit 
perhaps not brilliant with computers or, you know, relying on old computers and, oh, they were running this and they weren't properly secured. But all of the systems that those computers then do something to, there are hundreds and hundreds of years of people working out how could this fail Mm. and things that could happen to it that all existed. And all the computer does is it puts that machinery into some kind of state. And they've been worrying about the bad states that machinery can get into for a very, very long time. And it's an interesting counterpoint against computer security in general, because critical infrastructure has just been around much, much longer. And one of the other things I think Leslie was saying is, look, you know, we could learn something from this field because that just they've been doing this longer than we have. And maybe we should start thinking about it more like they do from the point of view of what are the bad things that can happen and how can we reduce those risks rather than, oh, what are my vulnerabilities? Like, kind of yeah. doesn't matter what your vulnerabilities are. It really matters what could somebody do with those vulnerabilities? Like, how bad could it get after they've exploited that vulnerability? That's what we take into 2022, you know? Let's learn a thing from someone else. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not working here. <laughs> we fumbled. Let's reassess. This is 2022, folks. Reassess. That's the theme of the year. That's uh, RSA's theme for the 2023, you know? Cause just calling it now. I'm offering it to them for free. Take it. <laughs> Could somebody else who works in a different field please come and tell us <laughs> how, how to do this? <laughs> Mark, Anna, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. It's been a blast. Thank you very much. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.